Hello there! It's a podcast to good to late. My name is Dasha and I'm from Russia. Here I'm trying to figure out how young Russians deal with the invasion of Ukraine. Please recommend it to your friends and leave a review on the Apple podcast or wherever you are tuning in. For this episode, I talked with Lira. She is 23 years old. She was born and raised in Nizhnykamsk, a small town in Tatarstan, which is famous for its numerous factories and issues with ecology. She finished her bachelor's in Moscow, did an exchange year in America, and did an exchange semester in Germany. She works as an English teacher and a tutor for Russians interested in getting a higher education abroad. And last summer, Lira left Russia. She moved to the city of Tampa, Florida, in order to get her master's degree in student affairs. We talked about the decolonization of Tatarstan, the influence of sanctions on Russian students, and the importance of educational exchange between Russia and other countries. I hope this episode will bring you new insights into Russia's young generation. Enjoy! Um, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this interview. How are you? I'm actually I'm actually feeling great. I haven't slept the whole night. I was preparing for my students. And I also wanted to say something before we even start, that uh, there's so much stigma around people who claim to be teachers, professors, especially when it comes, somehow it all boils down to like the English language. It's never about Italian, French, or any other languages. It's mostly English that if you teach English, it kind of means that you can never make a single mistake and you should be always flawless, which is absurd. <laughs> it's never going to happen that way. So for those people who are going to listen, because I would definitely want to share, especially with my students, I just want to acknowledge that making mistakes is super fine. I'm definitely going to make them, um, but it doesn't mean that I have a certain level of English. <laughs> yeah, 100%. It is true. So it's been uh, two years since uh, Alexei Navalny uh, got arrested and imprisoned right after he came back to Russia from Germany, where he got a medical care due to uh, being poisoned by agents of uh, FSB, um, Federal Security Service of Russia. And this weekend, uh, Russians all over the world are going out on uh, mass meetings, mass protests uh, in order to support political prisoners uh, in Russia. Did you participate in one of them? That's a great question that I'm being asked quite often from my um, Ukrainian friends that I was able to make in US. Um, and I have not. And I kind of want to like justify myself a little saying that I had such a strong desire to go out there to support um, and not even, not even um, you know, for that reason, but even so much earlier when we had uh, protests in Russia towards women rights and um, domestic violence, uh, domestic violence abuse, that is still um, quite an issue. And I, and I did not, and I did not. And I was honestly scared. I was honestly scared. Um, I, I, I felt like I have so much on my plate when it comes to pursuing my dream that I had for over three years, which is um, getting to the U.S., 
getting my master's um, and trying to make you know the way out in a new country and the idea of having a record that is like the percentage of getting arrested and getting that record was so high that it was so threatening that I honestly did not participate. I mean, but what about now? Uh, what about now? I haven't heard any of the meetings that are being held in Tampa right now. But honestly, um, I have talked to people who had uh, peaceful protests here in Tampa because um, I work in the international office right now in the University of South Florida. And they have been having, I believe, like two or three protests even supported by the university. Um, and if there was one like this, now I would certainly go and um, help my friends, you know, draw the posters and think of slogans. Uh, but I haven't heard anything happening recently. You know, it kind of feels like not people have forgotten, but it has become something not as urgent or not as discussing or pressing at the moment. Speaking of your homeland, I mean, our homeland, uh, but specifically your home home region. So as far as I got it, um, you are Russian, like your citizenship is Russian, but you are Tatar ethnically, right? Is it is it correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that's like what gets me whenever I try to explain uh, foreigners and especially Americans of my ethnicity, it's like it creates so much confusion that uh, whenever I say that I'm from, like I specify, hey, I'm Russian, but I'm from, from Tatarstan because, you know, I kind of want you to know that, you know, a part of my background being influenced by Muslim culture, by a uh, language that is very similar to uh, Kazakh language, to Turkish language, to Tajikistan's language, um, Tajik's language, I believe this is the right way to say it. Um, so I overheard my coworker presenting me once and she was like, uh, oh, this is Liren, she's from Tatarstan because she thought that it's going to go into the same group as Kazakhstan and all the stands out there. So, um, yeah, <laughs> my ethnicity is Tatar. Yeah. And um, from your perspective, what kind of similarities and uh, differences have Tatar culture and Russian culture? Um, I feel like it... It has a lot of similarities in the way we perceive life, in a lot of um, you know stigmas that we have, in how we view and treat women in our patriarchy, uh, patriarchal world, and um, I would say it's uh, celebrating both Russian cultures. Like my family would celebrate Easter and would celebrate um, New Year with everyone, and um, Christmas uh, if. The, the Russian side of my family's uh, friends would invite us uh, for that holiday. So I would say it's very blended. I can say whenever I was writing an essay, like a motivational essay for my um, master's, I was specifying that I was uh, raised in a melting pot, saying that um, Tatar culture being a minority, even though it's the largest minority in Russia, we still had to assimilate to the dominant group, to Slavics. Um, so mostly I have started reading about oppression of Tatar people that has been historically there, but just people are not ready to acknowledge it, um, as much. And same goes to 
other Russian um, ethnicities um, that are that have and still are oppressed. Uh, and also in terms of religion, how do you identify yourself? I identify ethnically. Ethnically, I say that I'm Muslim. I'm Muslim in Russia, but I am not religious. That's how I would put it. And have you ever faced any kind of discrimination ba- based on your like religion or ethnicity in Russia? <laughs> this is like how this is like the first sentence of my motivation of my personal statement to masters that I have been like highly thinking of. I was thinking like how to start and then like the idea appeared because my my entire essay evolves uh, around the topic of racism. So I uh, started thinking and like dig- digging into like what exactly can I mention. Um, so I started my personal statement with the saying, you're not like other Muslims. Because some people kind of, you know, mishearing the part where I say that I'm Tatar and it has a lot of similarities with all Muslim cultures out there. However, I am Muslim because both of my parents are Muslims uh, and my grandparents and great-grandparents. And that's why I'm Muslim. Yeah, that's something that I actually heard in University of North Alabama where I did my exchange semester. Um, saying that, like, oh, you're not like other Muslims, implying that I'm not wearing hijab, um, I'm not um, following the diet restrictions, that I'm not celebrating holidays, that I'm not uh, fasting. So, and I was like, there are so many, you know, shades of being Muslim and defining as one. So, and it also, I, I get where it's coming because people being unaware because people not being culturally educated, not seeing the world as much probably, not getting engaged with uh, people from different, you know, religious um, affiliations, let's say. So, uh, yeah, but what something interesting is when um, I started like kind of like covering the topic of racism in my Instagram, there was a girl reaching out to me and saying that Oh, Lira, you know, we actually have the same surname. So my surname is going to be Akhmetova, which is very, probably have heard the common uh, Muslim male name, um, Akhmet, Akhmet. So um, she was saying we actually have the same surname. And um, she told me that she was moving from Tatarstan, Czech Republic, to Moscow. And she was looking for apartments and she was reaching out to people through, I don't know, some kind of like app or email, something where they could see her uh None of the pictures, nothing, just her surname. And she was uh, refused in getting an apartment um, based on her surname because they were implying that she's one of those people coming from adjacent country to Russia to I don't know what. So it was kind of interesting because I've never had that. Um, And also I want to acknowledge that I feel like I have not had anything because, and this is also part of my personal statement, saying that I am Muslim, I'm, I, I, that's something that I want to specify. When I say Muslim, I say I'm Muslim Tatar woman. Um, oh, but I'm viewed as a white woman. So I'm privileged to have white skin, to have certain, you know, appearance that would never be assumed if I don't specify that I'm not Slavic. So this is like, I feel like crucial point when it comes to why haven't I had 
some issues. Okay, got you. So now I would like to talk to you a little bit about the language issue in Tatarstan and just yeah, prove me, like tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, so the official languages of the region are Russian and Tatar. And uh, the two nations with the most population in Tatarstan are Tatars and Russians. And uh, students at school learn both uh, Tatar and Russian as their primary languages. However, some years ago, I remember uh, Tatar stopped to be considered the primary language to learn for students for whom this language is not native, and specifically for Russians. Uh, do you know how is it going on right now? Oh, yes, sure. That was like a big topic that we have been discussing for like months, maybe even a year with my family. You know, the ones who uh, wants to um, preserve our culture because languages well, is the primary part of any culture and something that, you know, would differentiate you from other uh, nationalities in Russia. So I definitely have heard of that. It is absolutely true. And um, how is it going right now? I'm not quite sure because I haven't been in Tatarstan much because like for the last five years, I have been living in Moscow doing my bachelor's. Um, so, but I can, like, I, I remember how, like, we have been talking about that of, um, a lot of families, a lot of people have been truly disappointed, um, in not making it a primary language and canceling the exam, uh, for, I think, yeah, secondary students, like secondary students will take that exam, um, because it means that, uh, our culture at some point is going to start fading away because we're not speaking the language anymore. And the only thing that we have as of now of, you know, some of my friends uh, who still live there is um, using this language when you talk to your grandparents or even not grandparents, depends, depends on the family, but maybe grand-grandparents. So um, it's something that it also depends on you know how what what how geographically are we placing it because in Kazan um, you would see Tatar signs you would still see a lot of Tatar culture when it comes to language uh, for example if you want like an excursion you will be provided English Russian and Tatar as as a third option. And it's always nice to get back and like to see that, you know, the language exists still on like some signs uh, of the supermarkets. So, um, yeah, so it's still there when it comes to signs, when it comes to like some small attributes, which is great. But I wouldn't say that people mostly talk Tatar. I don't talk this language and I've never had been talking Tatar with my friends when I was going to high school. So like. I'm 23, so throughout these 23 years, I don't remember uh, me and my friends meeting and like talking in Tatar language or um, any of that. Okay, and uh, um, in your experience, like, did you learn Tatar at school on a mandatory basis? Yeah, it was a mandatory basis. And what's interesting, in schools we have like, I feel like it was like a test that you take in secondary school, you take this exam that determines if you go to Tatar group or if you go to Tatar slash Russian group, meaning that uh, the intent of the program is going to be a bit different. 
and I actually was always trying to make uh, my test worse. So I would go to Tatar, to Tatar Russian group um, so that it would be easier for me to get an A, you know, so that like the system would work in my favor. But it was hard because we everyone knew each other. They knew who my parents were. <laughs> my surname spoke for myself. They knew that I am 100% Tatar from both my dad and my mother. So... There was no other way around but going to this, you know, Tatar group. And honestly, for me and for my other, like, um, a Tatar friend, it was easier to study in that group. And I saw some people struggling, honestly, uh, who were Slavic, Slavic Russians, uh, to actually learn that language. But what's interesting, I had a very close friend and she was um, Slavic Russian. And, well she doesn't have any roots in any anything related to tatar people and she actually was so terrified to fail that exam and she didn't get an a she got a c and that also could have influenced some like we when well when we were kids everything was like exaggerated we were exaggerating that it's going to influence it actually wouldn't i believe i hope it wouldn't like they would still you know get her to high school and it would be fine because she passed it but still it's kind of like it, it i mean it impacts you when you get a c and you have been working hard and it's not your language so i also get the struggle for the slavic kids for whom it was hard because it wasn't an entire new language that they had to learn that they didn't have anyone to practice it with they didn't have their mom or grandmom or, you know, grandpa or father to educate them or to help with the homework. So, um, I mean, it is what it is. They have canceled it. I know a lot of people want to get it back. Uh, but yeah, there is like so much more to it than just like, oh yeah, let's preserve our culture. There is so much more to that. You know, the discourse of decolonization got more popular in media since Russia invaded Ukraine last year. And people really started to rethink the past of the country and especially the collapse of the USSR and why, for instance, uh, Chechnya wanted to separate from Russia. And uh, turns out the thing uh, um, that Tatarstan wanted the same thing at that point. Would you support a separatism movement of Tatarstan now? Oh, yeah, I was just um, reading about it the other day, I think. It was uh, November 2022, I'm not sure about the date, maybe 7th, maybe 14th of November, when um, the mayor of Tatar Republic um, actually has written some kind of petition or some kind of request uh, to get independence for Tatarstan from Russia. Uh, And I think it somehow got to um, the current president of Ukraine, uh, to Zelensky, into, to take it into consideration. And he has even commented on it. So they actually saw it. Um, it it's interesting because, well, I have heard, overheard people talking about it, you know, because Tatarstan at some point always wanted to become independent. And that's why we were... Um, fighting for the language mandatory rule Um, but I don't think it's going to be possible if you ask my honest opinion 
to their sons right in the middle of Russia. We have, in my hometown, it's Nizhnikovsk, we have all the factories and um, industrial, I wouldn't say industrial hard, but one of the hearts of Russia. I, I can't see it's happening. Like, it's right in the middle of the entire country. Like, how separate can it become? Speaking of your um, exchange experience in the US, you are an alumna of the YEAR program. Could you tell uh, our listeners a bit more what this program means for you and Russian students in general? Um, sure. So YEAR program, it's um, that's what it stands for. Like It's an acronym for Year of Exchange uh, in America for Russians. I believe I'm quite correct. There might be some endings that are different. So uh, yeah, it's specifically for Russian students to gain cultural and academic experience in the US. Uh, and the idea is to like fight stigmas and uh, actually send um, outstanding, highly accomplished students to America so they can educate Americans on Russian culture and they can also um, absorb some parts, traditions, um, some peculiarities about America and bring it back uh, to Russia. I feel like it's, you know, it's one of the ways, in my opinion, like the global idea for of this program is to fight those prejudices that, that exist. They were actually sending us to a rural, to a rural area, to uh, small communities, to small colleges and universities, so that we would actually educate people. And a lot of times we were the first Russians who would be in that city, who would be maybe in that state. And I have heard several times, you're the first Russian I have ever seen. And obviously after that, you know, million questions, all the stereotypes, how cold it is, <laughs> my favorite question, how cold it is, or do we actually drink vodka from the age of five, six, 11, 12, and then like you count. Uh, years. So um, when I was a scholar of this program, uh, we were placed in American host families for one month. After that, we would live in uh, dorms for one year, and we uh, I, there were mandatory um, volunteering hours. So we had to do I might be mistaken around twenty volunteering hours per semester. No, I feel like it was a little bit more, maybe 200 volunteering hours. Anyways, it was like some uh, sufficient amount of hours so that you can actually get the idea of what volunteering is because American society is mostly based on volunteering and helping others and community. Um, so we also had uh, a rule that we had to take one um, required, uh, required class related to um, American history, American government, anything to that so we can get educated because the idea was for us to get back and talk about it, right, of how it is. Um, taking some government-related class classes, history, government-related classes, um, and uh, everything else was pretty much up to us. Whatever we wanted to pursue, we were free to choose. Um, and the best part of this program is that it covers everything. When I say everything, I literally mean everything. That was the only time, that was the year that I never felt like I should be worried about something. You know, they kind of created like this bubble, you know, of you being privileged for this one year when you actually 
stop thinking about those uh, uh, like if we talk about the Maslow's pyramid of like uh, needs that we have they covered uh, first two steps maybe even three steps like socialization was also the part so they created like this amazing bubble where all you were thinking of like oh what, what video can I take or how can I talk to people how can I write you were actually at the point where you were thinking how can I self-develop uh, so after spending an exchange year in the US you decided to do masters in the US so why did you choose to continue your education there? So one of the primary reasons, because I was familiar with the culture, because I had great experience, so that all kind of influenced that. Um, I also have uh, had a boyfriend that I met in America, and it was kind of like that dream to get back together. And, uh, you know, like kind of was like, okay, what are we thinking? Like, it should be U.S. And um, also, all the other uh, countries would require an additional language at, the, at, a, at a relatively high level. And that's what I realized only when I had my exchange experience after the US experience in Germany. Because this was my biggest stereotype and myth that I had, that I was 100% sure I will go to Germany and I won't need knowledge of the language. I was like, it's Europe. They're all going to speak English. Huh? How dumb I was. No, absolutely not. And I realized that it's hard. Like you have to learn an entire new language within the one year, maybe even less at level of at least B1, but it's better to have B2, C1 to be able to thrive in that country, to be able to communicate and read and like no documents that you're signing for the leasing of your apartment and it was uh for me it was a big no for european countries and also the other reason was the choice of my master's program uh this program doesn't exist anywhere else but us uh it's called uh masters of education in curriculum uh or sorry i mean it's called master of education in curriculum and instruction with emphasis in student college affairs. So simply speaking, they learn, uh, they teach you how to become uh, an, an administrator, a manager within higher education. So in order to land a place uh, in American university, you were applying to numerous uh, universities there, and not only during the pandemic of COVID-19, but also during the ongoing war in Ukraine. Um, what did you do like what did you need to to do to apply and uh, how sanctions uh, hit your process of enrollment sure so the process for uh, applying is pretty similar to all the american universities uh, when you're pursuing masters or phd uh, it's usually your cv uh, personal statement maybe additional personal statements maybe a writing sample of your research work um, then uh, three recommendation letters from um, you know, two professors and one um, one faculty, not faculty, uh, and one employee that you employer that you have ever had in your life, and uh, yeah, and your transcripts. So that's what you do. That's what you complete. And um, the war in Ukraine happened exactly when it was actually the day 
when I got my offer to the university where I am. It's interesting. I woke up, started reading news, didn't know what to do, started crying, felt like everything is, you know, that my dream is so far away, that I'm not going to get an offer, that, you know, I was like thinking, what if someone is going to be subjective? What if, what if it's going to influence? I get my call from, I got, I got a position at the international office, and the lady, my supervisor now, was unbelievably aware. And when she called me, she was like, there, I know this happened. How are you feeling? Are you good? I was like, you know, empathy for Russians is not as common right now. And I get why. I absolutely get why it is not common. But it felt so good at that moment when I thought that, like, something that I have been working for two years is never going to happen. And then she says, I actually wanted to tell you that you got in. And we're ready for to wait for you if you're not going to get your visa for one semester. And please re reach out to me if you ever want to talk. I know that, you know, it can be hard for you. I know that a lot of things are going to start changing. So um, just keep me updated. We're waiting for you here. Uh, and we would love you to become a part of our team. I was like, oh, my God, it was the great university. It was the, you know, that, that moment I was like, you know, I chose, you know, it was, it was, a, it was the right choice for me. I was like, that was the right choice. You know, hearing that, getting, getting an offer felt like, felt like I was privileged to have a way out and starting it in advance, feeling like, uh, what about everyone else in my family? So I'm going to be the one making out. What about my friends? How is it going to affect them? Uh, these were first thoughts that I had. And when it comes to sanctions, the main problem was with um, credit card. So what the problem that I uh, had was like, what am I going to do when I'm going to get here? Like, what card am I going to use? Will I be able to send money to my family? And a lot of students who were in the U.S. that I was talking to, they were like, we're not sending them money. Like, there is no way. Like, we don't know what to do. Then, uh, you know, another thought, like, my sister is in Czech Republic. You know, everything just started aggravating. Um, but I was able to make it. Cash was the way out. I still don't have any cards. So it's mostly cash and uh, the amount that I make here as a graduate assistantship in the international, as a graduate assistant in the national office. So I feel like, you know, sanctions were not as bad as they have become months after. And uh, how did you manage to get visa to the US? I went to Kazakhstan, I flew to Kazakhstan. But also why... Uh... Uh, why initially you decided like to go somewhere to apply for the for a visa it's not possible at all to apply for study visa in russia <laughs> right right it's kind of you know it has been it, it has become you know like an like the normal life it's something that you don't even think that you need to specify for people out there but yeah for three years i believe uh american embassies um have been closed in russia uh and i think it happened right after pandemic or during pandemic i believe i kind of feel like i was the one of the last people who would get it in 2019 when i started my year program and everyone else 
after that year weren't able to get their visas any any types of uh, visas in uh, American Embassy in Russia so they have been closed for three years and that's why throughout these three years people were flying to different countries and that's how like you know you got to know so it was like something that like you have heard other people other students doing so you were like okay you know they they were able to do that they have their way out but it's not as easy for for everyone some of some of the students are being denied they're flying to other countries they're spending their last money just to make it happen so um it's not as easy and it's not certainly a yes and that's why it's so so nervous and that's when you feel you know like all your life is going to depend on that interview and on that day. That's why I was there five hours before my appointment because I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I was just, you know, staying, standing there and like hoping for it to go smooth because you never know. You never know what they're going to ask, what they're going to ask. And you're always thinking of like, like looking into bad scenarios. I mean, I'm, I'm pessimistic with, with all my heart. So I was thinking about all the bad scenarios that are going to happen. I wasn't thinking positively. I was like, I'm not, I'm not, it's not that I was thinking I'm not going to get it, but I was like, there is, I'm sure something is going to happen. Like bad luck will happen to me. Something, something they will ask and I won't be able to answer. Or I was even questioning my English level at that point. I was like, what if it's not enough? What they, what if they're going to say that, you know, it's not enough to pursue masters. I had like a C1 certificate of TOEFL and I was still doubting, you know, abilities and like what exactly are they going to, ask you why do you think it is uh, crucial for foreign universities to save the opportunity for russian students to study because there are some great individuals out there outstanding students with um, unbelievable academics and aspirations to change this world uh, for a lot of students it's a way out for a lot of international russian students uh, it's the only way to make it out of there by you know proving that you have certain merits and getting those, you know, scholarships that um, are being limited in some countries, um, because countries, foreign universities are going to gain so much more from having a student there, because uh, you know they can they can contribute to 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 increasing the diversity of the population to debunking those like myths and stereotypes for our non-russian speakers we have a set expression for our country when we discuss its future and reforms we call russia a wonderful russia of the future what is a wonderful russia of the future for you as of now a wonderful russia of the future would be the one that everything that i was learning in the constitution because i was learning it by heart for my social science language when i was uh, graduating from my high school would actually be true. You were listening to the Too Good Too Late podcast. If you liked this episode, don't hesitate to share it with your friends and leave a review on the Apple podcast or whatever platform you're using. Thank you for listening and come back soon.